0: Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah and Bean, and welcome back to another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. For starters, we wanted to give a big shout out and a big thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We really appreciate you guys. If you're not already a patron, please do check us out. Just Google Great Moments in Weed History Patreon, and you'll see we've got all kinds of fantastic bonus material
1: That's just for our patrons. So please do consider signing up. That's right. We love each and every one of you who supports us on Patreon. But there's lots of ways you can support the show. You can post about us on social media. That's a huge help. Word of mouth is our number one way to reach new listeners. Or you can hit pause right now. Now, usually when I tell you to hit pause, it's to roll up a joint. But in this case, I'm just going to say, please text five friends. Tell them about great moments in weed history. We would love you for it. Thanks. So our episode today relates to something that's been in the news recently.
0: And I'm talking, of course, about Shikari Richardson, the American athlete who was barred from competing in the Olympics because she tested positive for cannabis. And there's been all kinds of hoopla about whether or not cannabis is a performance
1: enhancing drug. What do you think, Bean? Well, I'd say cannabis definitely enhances my performance when it comes to certain things like writing or daydreaming or coming up with new weed puns. But Unless the Olympics are going to add an eating contest, I don't really see how they can call weed a performance-enhancing drug. What we're going to hear a lot about in this episode, however, is that cannabis can play a key role in supporting the health and the well-being of an elite athlete. Shakari Richardson actually spoke really movingly on the Today Show about how she turned to cannabis to deal with the trauma of learning that her mother had passed away. And now, after years of incredibly hard work and sacrifice, one of the fastest sprinters in the world is going to be denied her chance to go for gold. Personally, I'm disgusted. Honestly, I have not watched a single second of the Olympics. If people want to, that's really up to them. I am just completely sick and tired of seeing people have their lives ruined or their dreams taken away from them because of cannabis.
0: Yeah, exactly. And especially at a time when so many sports organizations are reexamining their rules prohibiting cannabis. You know, of course, we've seen the NFL, the NHL saying that. Actually, cannabis might potentially be a better option than other pharmaceutical drugs to reduce pain or reduce inflammation. So why not let these athletes who put their bodies on the line for our viewing pleasure treat themselves in the way that they feel comfortable, in a way that they feel improves their quality of life? Uh, And I think it should come down to those athletes. You know what I mean? Here's an organization who's saying, hey, you know, we're not the ones who run 40 miles an hour on a track, right? But we're going to tell you whether or not you can smoke pot. It's absolutely ridiculous. And our guest today is actually a very relevant person to this story. He is the first Olympian to come up against the organization's absolutely ridiculous policy on cannabis. And his story is truly one of the most amazing ones that we have ever had on this show. After we interviewed him, Bean and I agreed, Wow, this is one of the greatest weed sports stories of all time, and we're just so honored and so delighted that Ross Rebliati, Olympic gold medalist, decided to share his story with us on great moments in weed history, huh, Bean?
1: Absolutely. And now a quick listening note. We recorded this entire interview with Ross from the first time he ever strapped on a snowboard to winning Olympic gold and everything that came along with that, uh... We recorded all that before the news broke about Shikari Richardson being banned from the Olympics. So we actually went back and called Ross up and got his thoughts on that. He is really one of the few people on earth who has any idea what Shikari Richardson is going through right now. And here's what he had to say about that. When I
2: heard Shikari Richardson got disqualified from the Tokyo Olympics, it made me re- remember you know, what it was like for me in, in Nagano back in 1998. The weight of the decision coming down on me, kind of feeling like shocked and embarrassed and disgraced and, you know, the whole gamut of emotions that I'm sure that Shikari, uh, Richardson is, is feeling as well. Prohibition is steeped in, in racism and, and corporate interests. And, uh, you know, the fact that the United States maintains a Schedule I status for cannabis is really behind the whole inclusion of cannabis on the IOC list of banned substances. But the interesting thing to note is that Shakari was well aware of the fact that cannabis was on the list, and she chose to use cannabis anyway uh, in a moment of truth you know, probably in the saddest day of her life. Um, I think most people can relate to that. It really says a lot to, you know, and speaks a lot in favor of cannabis, to be honest. You know, cannabis is a much healthier choice. The fact that you can have beer gardens at the athlete's village, but still be worried about if someone had a toke from a joint, like the night before a competition, like has nothing to do with why the list of banned substances exists. If I could say anything to Shikari, Uh, Richardson, it'd be to dig deep and, and find strength from within and to double down on your character and double down on the choices that you've made and don't doubt yourself. That's the thing that helped me the most.
0: All right. And there you have it. So let's get
1: right into this episode. I've got a nice fatty rolled up here. How about you, Bean? Yeah, I've got an Olympic torch ready to burn over here, man, though. Obviously, that's not to say that my joint has been officially licensed by the Olympics. Anyway, if you're not quite ready to blaze just yet, there's still time. We're basically at... On your marks, get set! So, before you hear that starter pistol and the episode starts, just hit pause! Take a deep breath. And then roll up a joint of your own, or pack a bong, or split a blunt, or do whatever you're gonna do with those dabs that you love to do so much. Because when you're ready... We'll be ready... For another... GREAT Great MOMENT moment IN in WEED weed history. HISTORY!
0: here we are getting high with Ross Rebliati, weed legend, snowboarding legend. How you doing, Ross? I'm doing uh, excellent. (laughs) It sounds like it. Let's start right at the beginning. Uh, How did you get into snowboarding? When I started
2: snowboarding in in 1987, snowboarding wasn't allowed anywhere in Canada. I was a ski racer uh, for five years. By the time I was 15, when I started snowboarding in 1987, some uh, ski resorts in America were allowing snowboarding, but there was a lot of news on riders being arrested at the bottom of the mountain, and uh, you know, all kinds of crazy things for for snowboarding. And so it was just a wild time to be involved.
0: Yeah, we all remember the legalization wave of snowboarding <laughs> in the eighties.
2: Snowboard prohibition, right? At the time it was it was crazy because I was a, a good ski racer. I was fifteen. I was looking at the you know the BC team and the national team were you know, you know, were scouting riders. And so for me to quit the ski team, my dad couldn't even believe it. And and then to snowboard when you're not even allowed to snowboard, like it was I literally lived at my girlfriend's for two weeks after that.
3: Wait,
1: wait, wait a minute, because cause I think a lot of people who listen to this show either themselves or friends have, have had these negative experiences, getting kicked out of the house, getting <laughs> in a big fight with your parents over weed. Uh, but so this is the first prohibition in your life. This is before you've started smoking weed or, or are they kind yeah. of concurrent?
2: No, this was you know, prior to me smoking weed and I was uh, 15 at the time when I first started snowboarding and I hadn't really started seeing weed In my life until a few years later, like around 17 or 18. So it was it was two separate things. Uh, Snowboarding was so much fun at the time that I knew this was going to pick up like people were going to love it and
1: ski resorts were going to have to allow it. It sounds like what legalized snowboarding was not the social justice aspect of the uh, unfair targeting of bros with just one thing under their feet but the economic you know aspects of this and that's another interesting weed parallel but for you this was a boom right you are uh, at the forefront of this new sport and and what happens from there Right away, like I said, I got sponsored. The next thing you
2: know, I'm winning everything because of my ski race background. Um, it wasn't hard to learn the snowboard tricks of the day either back in those days. It was pretty basic compared to watching the X Games now. So right away, I was able to win the races and and start winning the half pipe competitions. The next thing you know, I'm on the cover of Trans World Snowboard Magazine 1990. Like in high school, teenager, on the cover of Transworld, you know, one of the first issues, like the fourth or fifth issue ever of Transworld.
0: So, so this was also the time that you started to smoke weed, right? Like, how did that enter the fold for you? When
2: I first started competing, I hadn't started smoking weed yet. But by the, by the time I had gotten, like, coverage in the magazines, like, my friends and I were, like, doing hot knives and, uh, you know, in the kitchens when the parents were out. Like literally the first few times I got baked, I didn't even get baked.
0: Right. Yeah. That happens to a lot of people.
2: I was like waiting for like some bad experience. Like when I drink like to happen, like, okay, I'm fucking drunk. I'm puking my, you know, I'm not, I don't want to,
1: you know, I ended up quitting drinking and, and only smoking weed, but that's another story. One thing we should let people know who might not be familiar is that where you grew up, British Columbia, is the very, very weedy part of of Canada. What was the weed scene like at the time? What were you able to get access to? What was it like to grow up in such a sort of weed-friendly environment in British Columbia?
2: Well, at least one of my friends' dad smoked weed when I was growing up, right? And so when we were kids, like 10, 11, 12, like I seen him taking pups from his pipe and I asked him, you know, what is that? And he's like, oh, it's weed, man. Like this was in the seventies, right? Like these guys were still hippies. My, my friends' parents were hippies, like for real hippies. And, um, you know, there was not, no big deal about it. I never really paid him much attention you know going to the ski resort as a ski racer around the same era we smelled weed when we were going up the chairlift and for years i didn't know it was weed until i asked my buddy's dad because i recognized the smell right and then i'm like oh it's weed but again we never th- thought anything of it we knew it was illegal because you know the whole Nancy Reagan war on drugs you know filtered into canada pretty easily at the time as well you know this is your brain this is your brain on drugs and so as a kid, you're kind of getting these mixed messages, you know, and, and not really knowing because of lack of experience. And so there, it was around.
0: And so you came up in this place, in this culture where weed is just ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Like you're saying, it's not really a big deal to you culturally. Right. But of course, B.C. is pretty unique when it comes to weed culture, especially at this time. Right. It's the one of the only weed friendly places around. So when did you start? competing or snowboarding outside of bc and realizing like oh like this is not something you can just freely do anywhere
2: sure well i guess it was the next year after i won those two amateur titles i got a wild card for the world cup circuit and the next thing you know i find myself training in austria the next fall in september october with no weed for the first time i never even thought of no weed i'm like yeah i'm going on the world (laughs) cup tour and I left and living in Whistler where I was at the time like weed was all around me all the time I could smoke weed if I wanted whenever I wanted and so the idea of not having weed just never crossed my mind um so the first few weeks in Europe with no weed I was like really jonesing for weed because it was really part of my my ritual of the day and and how you know I could like mitigate different issues (laughs) you know what kinds of issues Well, just like, you know, stress related issues, like say you, you traveled to Europe and you haven't slept in 27 hours straight, and then you have to jump in a rental car and drive to a ski resort and then sleep. But really in Canada, it's still the middle of the day. And then you have to wake up early and it just ends up becoming like this pyramid of jet lag with bad sleeping patterns, um, not being able to eat properly at the right times, not you know being able to take a shit when you need to like at the wrong <laughs> fucking time because your your whole world's upside down because you you know, you're on the other side of the earth you know th- those were the types of things that ended up you know when I finally did hook up in Austria because when you're a young kid like and I was like 20 you don't know how to hook up in Austria you don't even know how to hook up you just your friends
0: have weed right <laughs> yeah I, I actually have had to find a hookup in Austria when I was on tour with my band one time and it was a pain in the ass and the weed was fucking terrible once we found it. Yeah, you got to smoke the
2: hash with the tobacco and the whole nine yards, which I actually got into and really enjoyed. But as it turned out, one of the, the girls on my team, we hooked up and the next thing you know, she's coming. She came home with 10 grams of hash one day from just, you know, after training, she went to the village and she talking to a guy and 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 so that's that was kind of when I I got back into my groove from there it was like you make over time you make friends with the Austrian team the Italian team the Swiss guys right and before the European Union you literally had Swiss money and Austrian money and Italian money and you had to cross all those borders. Traveling around with weed at the time was sketchballs, right? Because they have fucking dogs. The, the guards in, in Europe are, you know, they
1: all have machine guns. It seems like the legalization movement for snowboarding went very rapidly. And the legalization of weed still still trails far behind. Uh, yeah, and
2: weed's way safer than snowboarding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: for, for me, for sure. One, one thing you touched on that was interesting is you don't hear enough about... Uh, weed as a laxative, uh, which is a very interesting benefit, particularly in your situation. But I'm wondering how it affected your actual boarding, not, not just dealing with the stress and the travel. And of course, that's important. But when was the first time you can remember combining the two using cannabis and snowboarding at the same time? And and how, uh, how did that affect you as a boarder? So it was probably that spring after my first year of World
2: Cup. We were at Mount Bachelor, Oregon, uh, training with some of the old school legend guys like Kevin Delaney and Dave Dowd and um, some of these older like legend Andy Coghlan style guys that um, you just read about in magazines were joining our team. And so they're smoking weed, going up the chairlift, getting ready to do some banger runs down the training course. We're all like raced up and race boots and race board speed suits, like (laughs) looking like like Spider-Man out there. And these guys are smoking bowls on the on the chairlift. I'm like, fuck, what are you guys doing smoking bowls? Like, I was the guy, like, sneaking so that my fucking coach or nobody knew nothing about weed and me. And then these guys are just blazing right on the chairlift. And so that was kind of an eye-opener for me when, because I obviously had a couple of puffs too, right? And the next thing you know, I'm in the training course, and I'm just loving it. I'm like, holy shit, like, I'm noticing, like, twice as many things now than I was before uh, I ever trained on wheat. And so now I have different, a different feel on my board and I, I can notice things I didn't notice before, like my foot position.
0: Probably just more fun too, right?
2: Way more fun. <laughs> way, <laughs> way better. Better yeah. in every way because it, it was already combining a part of the lifestyle that I was already accustomed to and made being away from home less um, foreign to me. And so I was able, this was like a consistent thing in my life that I was able to, you know, also bring with me on tour and then, and then be able to share it with like-minded people.
0: What were the events leading up to your qualifying for the Olympics? You're getting there. How geeked were you when that was happening?
2: Yeah, right. So in 94... Um, They let the IOC announce that snowboarding would be in the next Olympics. And for us, it was just the one discipline, right? So giant slalom. So I quit everything else that I was doing and just focused on giant slalom. I ended up having a, a knee operation as well. I blew my knee out right around 95, 96. And so 96, 97, the
1: year before the Olympics, I was still fresh off of knee surgery was was cannabis part of your sort of rehabbing from that injury was that another layer of that relationship yeah it turned out to be right because that's when
2: i started getting prescribed the codeine developed a little bit of an addiction to it even though i didn't think i did because at the time it was cool to drink beer and do codeine you know the doctor gave it to me it felt awesome i was like laid up at my grandma's place watching the prices right with the bum knee high on opium and thinking okay this is sick man it's <laughs> and, like take, take
0: time off and
2: smoking on her, on her <laughs> deck. I'm I'm high on opiates and I'm loving life, right? But then what turned out was that um after my surgery, then it was like, oh buddy's got you know Tylenol threes. So uh, you know obviously I want one just for to party with. Yeah. So there was that whole like underlaying time it was the era athletes in all sports were being subjected to codeine and other opiates by their their team and their their trainers and the doctors so i started noticing how it made me feel too good because i i couldn't tell that i had a hurt knee and that i was occasionally setting myself back by doing too much on my knee because i couldn't feel it anymore whereas when i was like running low on the pills that they were giving me and I was smoking weed I could still feel my knee but I was able to still function at a you know at a acceptable level so over time I started realizing like okay I gotta this opiates and the whole like if you're injured take a painkiller thing has to stop so I started smoking more and more weed and realizing that it wasn't just something that made me you know feel good or or a recreational high it was something that was that I felt like it was helping me as a person. I was a better person. I was a, uh, a healthier person, and more aware of my, you know, surroundings and you know the people that I'm I'm with and just everything.
3: What do you do when you're bored with alpine ski racing? Well, British Columbia-born Ross Rebliati saw a brochure for snowboarding and suddenly had a new passion one of the trailblazers with a snowboard, the first man on the mountain at Whistler. In profile, we meet Canadian Olympian, Ross Rebliati.
2: So the airlines loses all my gear.
3: Wait, did
1: your weed make it through? No. Oh, Oh,
2: no! so much stress going on that there was no weed at at this point. Like, I didn't have time for anything like that. We're within a couple of days of going to the Olympics yet. Weed was the furthest thing from my mind at the time. Like, I hadn't smoked weed in so long. I actually had physically, like, made an effort to stop smoking weed in April of 97. So this was coming up to February of 98, right? Less than a year, but we didn't know much about weed in the 90s or how long it stayed in your system sure. or anything like that. So we knew it was going to be a long time. We, the the weed guys, like me and a bunch of other guys, we all stopped in April. There there was it, it was so inc- because the new tour that we were on it had fucking drug testing on it. The other tour didn't have drug testing for anything. It was a fucking snowboard competition. There's no drug testing. And because- now all of a sudden we've got drug testing and we think weed is on the list of banned substances, which it is on the World Cup tour. And so we're like freaking, we don't even want to smoke weed now because we're trying to get to the Olympics, right? And so here we are, this, the weed guys are like, just fucked, right? Because we're not smoking weed anymore. And we don't use alcohol like the way other But it, people were using alcohol, you know, to deal with that sort of thing. Um, we were using weed. Yeah, And so that brings me, you know, right up to the night before the Olympics. Weed wasn't on my mind at all. I didn't even, I wasn't thinking about weed, nothing like that. I, I did my routine. I tuned my, my boards. That night, we had yeah, no, no technicians. We did all our own tuning. Everything went um, like clockwork that morning of the race. Uh, my first run out of two runs uh, was bumpy ride for me. It was a beautiful morning, sunny, and the snow is set up like ice. They sprayed it with water and treated it with a chemical so that it would freeze, even if it wasn't freezing. And it was rock hard because it was sunny and freezing cold in the morning. And I ended up in eighth place after the first run. And I believe I was four tenths of a second out, which is a pretty big chunk of time in ski racing and snowboard racing. Guys are within hundreds of each other. And so it put me in eighth place in in any case. And so that I knew that there was a, I could make up the time if everything went like perfectly for me. And, and so, you know, I went for lunch at the hotel, like I planned, but they closed the lunch. I had to like, threatened the guy to give me lunch pretty much they're like no lunch is finished like i came in at the wrong time and i literally jumped over the counter into the kitchen and then they said okay we'll get you the spaghetti because i could see it right <laughs> so i got my spaghetti this, this
1: is also maybe the no weed thing <laughs> so, so canada too
2: because on the u.s team they had chefs and fucking lawyers and masseuses and shit cooking for these guys this would never happen to a different team anyways I get, I'm tuning my, I'm waxing my board in the hallway of the hotel, plugged into the hallway, getting waxed on the carpet and shit, fucking scraping it. And I get to the top of the race course and everything's on time, everything's looking good. I've got other technicians from different wax companies who know who I am because they service other teams all year long and we're friends. And he's like, give me your board, man. I got some shit for you. And I got technicians working, (laughs) getting emotional working on my board the goggle guy is like swapping out lenses The the weather's changing like instantly it's it's like foggy and there's a delay right there's like a storm coming through and the coach my coach for the the olympic team he's like hey okay you're next what do you want to know i'm halfway down and i'll give you a course report i said to the coach no course report just tell me what, what time the award ceremonies are at. That was my mentality. It was like, same thing. I'm coming out of not being able to get my food for lunch. I'm all aggro again, right? No weed, nothing like that. I'm going to kill somebody right now. And it was just like, okay, this is it. I'm at the Olympics. There's no more, no more training. There's nothing. Like my motto during my whole entire career was, I'd rather have no time than a slow time. And I pulled out of the start gate like a fucking botch man. Like literally passed the first gate in the air. You know, like I was on fire, adrenaline pumping. Like, I, I feel it right now.
1: Hey, here he is.
0: Okay, Ross hey, he Rebliati of Whistler, British Columbia. He's in eighth place after the first run, he was a half second back of J.C.J. Anderson.
1: It's basically carve or starve for Ross right now. He's really got to give her if he is going to hope to get on the
2: podium. I was going so fast down the course, I didn't even have time to change directions. Like I was going so far in the wrong direction in my mind that there was no way I was going to be able to like get my board to go the other way. Hmm. And that's how I was the whole way down. But if you watch the race it doesn't look like that, it looks on point the whole way, but it felt
1: completely out of control. So Ross, if he can hold it together, and he's fighting it right now for all it's worth, if he can hold it together, he could be in there. So at the end of the last few gates, sets it down a bit, but doesn't scrub too much speed. And he's not holding back. Oh, and yeah. this time Ross Rebliati of Whistler, British Columbia, takes over the lead. He's That's in first place to this point. Nice one, Roscoe. You're the man, baby. You're the man. Ross Rebliati, Canada. Olympic champion, gold medalist, Ross Rebliati, Canada.
2: And then I do my drug test, right? So I have the cool, like, fake award ceremonies in the finish line. And then we go to the the drug test and the pee test. We went into the army tent where they did that. And so mine went, no problem. My other buddy, he couldn't pee, right? He ended up having to take a crap in a bag in front of everybody <laughs> so that he could, so he could pee. So that was funny. It was my buddy. Not say that guy, but... Anyways, that was, that was funny. And we, we had a good time that night. We partied, did the awards ceremonies, you know, it was the first event of Nagano. And so this was the first medal given out also for the Games. And um, also for us as snowboarders, we had never been at a competition anywhere near this caliber. And so the whole thing was overwhelming. Credit Accreditations and armed guards everywhere. Security was off the chain. You know, snowboarding had finally risen up out of, you know, the ashes, like the Phoenix. And, and now here we are at the, the main event, right? At the Olympics. And, you know, I had had reoccurring nightmares. And especially when I really stopped smoking weed in April of 97, that I forgot I was going to the Olympics or that I caught myself smoking a joint and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do?
0: And so I, <laughs> I've I was had so that nightmare so many times. It's similar. Oh, it was, seriously, it was like
2: reoccurring constantly. I wake up with anxiety and not even realize because it was so vivid that it was a dream until a few minutes. And I finally felt like, okay, I made it. Just getting the medal like over your head and, and feeling like the weight of a gold medal um, and seeing a, an Olympic gold medal for the very first time in my life, you know, to be able to pull it off was, you know, just incredible we had a great night that night up at the hotel um up at the ski resort and um you know there was whiskey bottles and karaoke and uh all people coming by to see the medal i knew everybody on the whole tour freestyle or the race Hmm. and they're like fucking ross one man let's go check it out (laughs) yeah it was um unreal and then so the morning came and my room was still packed full of people. Luckily, I didn't really have a hangover, thankfully. And, you know, I, it was just like coaches came in the room and cleared everybody out and said, Ross, you, you got to sit down, brother. Um, you've tested positive for something and you need to take all of your supplements that you have with you down to Nagano and see if anything that you're taking is, because they haven't said what it is. I was right away like, bro, I'm not taking anything. The only thing it could be is weed. It's the only thing I'm exposed to that I know could be a problem is weed. But you haven't smoked in months at this point. Months. But I was, you know, around everybody that I usually am around, you know, when I wasn't on tour, I was at home in Whistler and I wasn't isolating myself. I was going over to my buddies' places as soon as they were off work like waiting for them at their house <laughs> with the, the beers and the the steaks and shit. And they've got, you know, they're going to smoke weed. I'd normally be smoking weed, but it was like, you know, everyone wanted to talk about me going to the Olympics. And it was like an exciting time for everybody. I knew that I was going to the Olympics. I remember lots of gatherings where there would be like 30 or 40 people, all smoking weed in the living room. And I just, the joints would come around constantly like literally like we'd smoke weed constantly <laughs> and i'd just be passing the joints and like oh sorry man i keep forgetting you're you have drug testing and surprisingly it wasn't like hard not to smoke weed you know i thought it might be but it, it was surprisingly easy to to not do it
0: yeah, not physically um, addictive
2: yeah it's not and I I can attest to that because I had to stop smoking it on multiple occasions. That's a pretty Um, hard,
1: that's a pretty hard test of whether you can quit smoking weed also. (laughs) Yeah,
2: well I I wouldn't say I actually quit right, I always started back up again but it was something of a higher, there was like a higher frequency that was calling me uh, to the Olympics that was bigger than myself and you know I didn't know at the time that the Olympics was just going to be the beginning of something else completely from there. As I get, I take the bus down to Nagano from the ski resort. It's a shuttle van bus. Right. And they just put me in it by myself. They didn't, none of the coaches even came with me because I don't know why. And they're like, Oh, the Olympic, the Canadian Olympic association reps will meet you down there in Nagano. So I get on this bus and I'm freaking out. Right. Cause I have my medal in my pocket and I, I know a, this is going to be a major story. Um, in 1988, 10 years before, you know, at the beginning of my career, Ben Johnson, other Canadian, got his medal taken away in South Korea. And he was like a disgrace in, in Canada in the eyes of Canadians and um, the world for, for taking steroids and you know this whole thing was so taboo at the time right and now here i found myself in the f- seemingly in the same position as as that and i was just crushed in this van going down to nagano and there was this other guy athlete from a different country who i didn't know who was going down to athletes village to fucking like have fun <sighs> and to go like see some events cuz all the athletes get to see the other events right and he's like, he didn't know what happened to me. Nobody knew. The coaches just privately came and told me and then sent me on this thing. He's like, this is awesome, right? We're at the Olympics. And, and then I'm like, dude, this is what just happened to me. And he was just like stunned. You know, we didn't even talk for two more hours after that. He just looked out the window. And I was like looking out my window, just stressing. I get, we get down to Nagano and there's like a thousand reporters blocking the whole parking lot for the hotel. Like a luxury, like Prince Hotel in, in in Japan, right? The reporters are there about your P test. Yeah, because it's the Olympics, and i I'm, they're good. This is already international news that there's a Canadian um, suspected of some drug uh, uh, um, infraction, and that they're looking at taking his medal away. But they're not saying what it's for. Nobody's <sighs> saying what it's for, right? And so this is the Olympics on the first day. And this is like the big story, right? For for the 1998 Olympics. And I'm like, no national team clothing on me. My my f- friends from Poland actually brought me Polish wool sweaters that I love mm. and brought them to Japan for me, to give to me. And I was wearing one of my sweaters from them. I was wearing my jeans. I had nothing on me that associated me to the Canadian team. So I didn't want this to be on them for the rest of their event, because they're still here for two more weeks. I ended up being shoved around by the reporters and having like the the police all around me. They had to clear the people away so I could get into the hotel and then push people away from the elevator so I could get into it. And then I, I find myself alone in a hotel room after that. So I was alone in the bus for two hours. Then it was 30 seconds of pandemonium. And then I end up again alone in a hotel room. And, like, my worst nightmares are coming true, literally. Like, I fucking failed the weed test. I knew it. And how did I even fail the weed test? I didn't even smoke weed. No one said nothing about secondhand smoke. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I even get to the Olympics and fucking qualify and and win it. Like, if there was any secondhand smoke and if there was any issue with me getting to the Olympics and not getting my gold medal, they should have caught it in the three tests that I did before I went. And so... the. I'm just freaking out. I'm like looking, like literally, can I push the panels up in the ceiling and slide my medal in there and say someone already took it from me? Um, <laughs> can I escape out of the hotel somehow and get to Tokyo and fly to Central America? Like I am literally thinking about doing this. Like other things crossed my mind too, right? Like I was in a really dark place already was losing weight and not sleeping really well before the games. Now I'm, and the buildup for four years was intense, and the whole everything that happened—not getting on the team, getting back on the team—there was so much stress.
1: There's no weed and thing, well, just got to keep going back to that. <laughs> no weed. weed
2: this whole time, and that's how we can stay in the story because there wasn't any weed. And there should have <laughs> been, weed. Just,
0: the, just that, just that—that point oh 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 seven mm. micrograms mm. in your bloodstream, <laughs> nanograms, or even less than a microgram.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and. And um, anyways, so, yeah, we, we made uh, an appeal to the International Olympic Committee and all 37 representatives dressed in their, like, national outfits, sat around a big table oval with me in the middle, saying how I tested positive for weed, right? Because at that point, now they're saying what it was, right? I just said, you know, what happened? Like I smoked weed recreationally and I stopped smoking weed and somehow I still tested positive from secondhand smoke. And that's the only uh, explanation I can think of. That. That's why I would have tested positive for it. And then I made this, you know, big um, press conference in front of all the world media saying that, you know, the same story and, one of the reporters was like, am I gonna like change my friends now because I live such a crazy lifestyle and my friends must just be like wild and crazy. And and I'm like, no man, like
0: we're just chill at home. He was like, Like, are you gonna just never talk to any of your friends again? Like what an unreasonable request. (laughs) (laughs) Like
2: they're all like, like they're comparing weed to like, you know, a meth culture or something Mm -hmm. like that. Uh. right?
1: They're also, they're also like, listen, we love the way that you fly down a mountain at the top speed humanly possible <laughs> with a little thin piece of plastic on your feet, but this dangerous weed smoking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very dangerous. Like I said, weed's uh, safer than
3: snowboarding. And... Um, Yeah, even like people like Robin Williams. Unlike the poor Canadian snowboarder in 1998 Olympics, they took away his medal because he tested positive for marijuana, which is kind of redundant, number one. Number two, (laughs) they said that marijuana was a performance enhancing drug. (laughs) Marijuana enhances many things, colors, tastes, sensations, but you are certainly not fucking empowered. Poor Canadian snowboarder, they asked for his medal back and he couldn't find it. It was around his fucking neck. Yeah, there was this dark side, but there's also a
2: silver lining. But at the time, it was really dark, right? Like, I had, I lost the first appeal. Um, and then I made, you're allowed to do two, so I did a second appeal. Uh, our Canadian guy, Dick Pound, what a name. <laughs> what <right>? a name. <laughs> you know he's not going to vote for me just because of his name, right? <laughs> so, sure enough, he didn't vote for me. He abstained because he thought it would be a conflict of interest against his career um, to be, uh, he ended up being on the the head of the doping committee for the international Olympic committee. And I think he continues to be to this day. In any case, Dick didn't vote for me and it was a split decision and they've never not given it to the athlete on a split decision. I was the first time and they, they, They made this decision to to take my medal away.
1: Ross Rebliatti tested positive for cannabis or marijuana. Well, there's no doubt this story has caused a sensation here in Canada, but it's also grabbing headlines around the world. Canadian snowboarding champion Ross Rebliatti saw his gold go up in smoke today. The
3: 26-year-old son of a gold miner learned there's no pot of gold here, it's pot or gold. The athlete Rebagliati Ross, member of the Canadian delegation, is disqualified
2: and excluded from the 18th Olympic Winter Games for presence of marijuana metabolite. The Canadian Olympic Association is hereby requested to withdraw and return the medal and diploma awarded to the athlete Rebagliati.
1: The limit, as set by FIST, the governing body of all skiing, is 15 nanograms per milliliter. He had 17. 17- that moment must have been so crushing
0: for you. What did that feel like? Everything at that point was like in
2: shambles. So I, I was literally like on my last breath. There was no chance. Like, I'm gonna appeal. Like, who cares about me? Like, I'm not, no one's gonna listen to me. Like, I'm I'm nobody. I'm, I'm like, they didn't even want snowboarding in the Olympics. They just had to have us to make money because they couldn't make money off of cross country skiing and bobsledding. I'm sorry. No one was watching it in North America, right? And I'm a cross-country skier, and I even say that. So the court of arbitration was next after you lose the two appeals. So I had five lawyers on my side, given to me by the IOC. I'm, I'm at this wine and cheese party because I'm meeting these five lawyers at the wine and cheese party in Nagano, at the top of this building somewhere. Prince Albert of Monaco is there. And he's a bobsledder at the time still competing and he's like hey bro fuck this is bullshit what's happening to you right now like you want to come to monaco anytime you hit me up and i'm like talking to all these different like wild people right and we get into the the conference room and they're like it looks like you're gonna get to keep your medal. weed's not
0: on the list of banned substances Boom. And there is our great moment. You got your gold medal back despite Um,
2: the fact that there was weed in your pee. Amazing. I I got to keep it. Weed wasn't on the list of banned substances. But what happened, because they still had to report this to the committee. So this wasn't a a decision. This was just a fact at this point.
0: So it was just a sort of logistical snafu that made them say that actually you had a banned substance and I guess the fact that weed is technically illegal in Japan even if it's in your pee yeah
2: and there's another part of the story when I did my drug test independently from the Olympic Committee the physicians brought it the samples to the police Oh man and and so, after this wine and cheese party with the prince of monaco and my five lawyers um i'm feeling a little bit better but the police want invite me up to the police station because they had a case open on me and they just want to ask me a few questions and and so they can close it or whatever they said right so we would We cooperated, of course, but I ended up getting up to the police station and then they separated me and put me in a a cell and then interrogated me for like five hours straight at that point. And I was already like at the end of my rope before that happened. It gets to the point in the interrogation room where I have an interpreter who can't speak English. Um,
0: (laughs) Doesn't that just make them a japanese person <laughs> like you're not an interpreter if you can't speak both <laughs> the languages that you're dealing with it, it was I an know.
1: interpretive <laughs> dance so <laughs> i'm
2: feeling i'm feeling like i'm a little bit you know behind the eight ball with this interpreter and they're asking me these basic questions about weed because in japan they don't really know much um prohibition followed quite quickly after the united states um in japan um after world war ii they kind of were like okay, whatever the states does, we're <laughs> we're we're gonna do.
0: And yeah, I've smoked some weed in Japan, and it is very very illegal there. Very hard to get, very hard to find, uh, and it's awful.
1: And to to bring a little weed history into this quickly, no less a personage than. Uh... Paul McCartney, McCartney was held by the Japanese authorities and really came close to going to prison there. So this is now a criminal investigation. This is beyond having to do with your gold medal and you can be uh, basically imprisoned in Japan at this point. Yeah, exactly. They, they actually
2: pressed charges of um, importing a controlled substance into Japan.
0: That was in it. In your bladder.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah and um it, it was getting serious and it got to the point where he the the police asked me like how I used weed and so I said I smoked joints and they're like what's that and like the interpreter wasn't working so I took one of his cigarettes and these guys all looked like John Wayne right I'm not even kidding like their hair was back and everything he takes the cigarettes out of his arm right and he gives me one and I break it I take the filter off I break it I dump out the tobacco and then I roll it back up again into a joint and so his next question was so everybody who smokes weed smokes tobacco and I was just like okay I'm not answering any more questions (laughs) hours had gone by right and I was like starting to freak out and I said I'm stopping uh they left the room and a, a few minutes later they came back in the room and I was literally counting like things in the room like it was so small I could touch the sides I'm like this is so shitty um they they came and got me and they brought me back out. And as they were bringing me back out through the police station to where the Canadian reps were, who shouldn't have left me, they said, you know, we can't keep a, an Olympic gold medalist in jail. It's too controversial. it would be too controversial. And then when I, I didn't know what he was talking about, and so I we got out to... You know where the the lobby and whatever of the police station. When I was back with the Canadian RCMP, was there like the police, the Canadian police were there. Um, the Canadian he didn't have a horse, did he? Dude, he was he was wearing his
1: red shit, and <laughs> this this has everything. Yeah, it really does. Very, this would be a very expensive scene to costume in the movie yeah. because we I feel have like the
0: village people are going to show up.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. So.
2: It, there were some tense moments, and then they, they got official word on their, on their cell phones, which was a new technology at the time. I, I could keep the metal because weed wasn't on the list of banned substances. I, I finally, like, I was able to come out onto the front steps of the police station where there was, like, all the media was there because they knew now that now the guy was up at the police station, right? This was even more news on top of everything that was going on. Like, the story was developing. then they come out of the police station holding my gold medal out. As uh, as one does.
0: Yeah. This is a bonus great moment right here.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so I got to keep my medal again. You know, it was like the first time was at the awards ceremonies. And so now this was like the second time. It's the first time in Olympic history any medal has ever been given back.
0: Wow, man. And that's incredible. What a stroke of justice, especially at a time when cannabis prohibition was rampant worldwide especially in Japan the country that you're competing in and somehow against all the odds with weed in your system you took the first ever snowboarding olympic gold medal
1: crazy crazy what was the reaction of you know we've seen we've heard from the authorities and and it all seems of course you know punitive and surreal and just based on underlying opinions about weed that are grounded in nothing. But what did the people think? What did your colleagues, your fellow snowboarders think, your fellow Olympians? And what did the people of Canada, after this whirlwind of going from winning the gold medal to being potentially going to prison and coming back out, how, how did the people react?
3: support for
2: Rebliati is coming from all corners of the country. We begin in Whistler where no matter what happens to his medal, the community still plans to celebrate when he returns from Japan.
0: So whether whether he gets the gold or not, I mean, us, us guys up here in
3: Whistler are going to make him a gold medal. We're going to have the party. We're going to have the fireworks because to us, he's just, he's still the man. He won the Olympics. And the mayor of Whistler agrees.
2: I think the community is uh, is really proud. I think they want to send a message. It was great. You know, I there was it was a mixed bag, of course, right? You can't you know win all of the votes, even if you're Obama, right? Like someone's not going to like you, right? But you know, it was it was amazing. And that you know, the very next day, I went to the athletes' village, and the whole athletes' village gave me a standing ovation in the in the food court. Um, all the NHL players were there all coming up to me and taking pictures with me and stuff. Uh, Wayne Gretzky hooked me up with his agent. I found myself, um, back in my hotel room, not long after being let out of jail, like a couple of hours with my phone ringing. And as my buddy is like, yeah, Jay Leno wants you to come on the tonight show. <laughs> like tomorrow you have to go. So I get to the Narita airport in Tokyo and everybody knows who I am. I end up in in, uh, LA, Uh, paparazzi are in LA waiting for me. It's crazy, right? We get to the Beverly Hilton, Porsche has a Porsche. Somehow they knew I was staying at the Beverly Hilton and there's a Porsche waiting for me. I just gotten out of jail. I just went through the worst experience of my life. Um, It totally overwhelmed the good experience that I had winning the gold medal. Like even now I'm in LA doing the Tonight Show and I'm still like, Man, I don't know if it was worth it still. Like, I'm still feeling the weight of what happened to me. Anyways, I get to that. I get to that Tonight Show, and Jay's great, and it's awesome.
3: Last week, my first guest won a gold medal in uh, giant slalom snowboarding, the first ever in the Olympics. Uh, he was disqualified after testing positive for marijuana, but his uh, home country of Canada appealed the decision, and he won, and he's here now to tell us all about it. Please welcome Ross Rabagliati. <laughs> You've had quite a week. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> now let, let's let's get to this. Now you officially won the medal, and, and then you lost it. Do you have the medal here? So you, you, I do. You can't keep so cool I I it Yeah. You can You carry it in your pocket? Like. Yeah. It's in my pocket. In a bag. <laughs> not, is that the Olympic bag? This is the official Olympic sack that oh, they I, gave me. So. Is that the Olympic sack? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's pretty good. Let wow. to wow. put it on? Come on. It looks like it's got a little, uh, ooh, what happened? It got a little chip in it. Yeah, I decided that I was going to bite it like you see everybody else do, and it actually dented what? the thing. <laughs> why, did you, why did you bite it? Did you think it was chocolate inside? Well, because, you know, yeah, chocolate, <laughs> you know, almond center maybe, I don't know. How yeah. much marijuana did you have in your system? Well, just to put it in perspective, it, it, was, it was like a billionth of a gram. A billionth of a gram? Oh, Cap, yeah. how much a billionth of a gram gone for? <laughs> <laughs> not not much. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm glad you got it back, and, and, and you know, I'm glad. Was, did you mind the jokes? You know, everybody was doing jokes about you. Yeah, I heard it. I heard about that you. The guy called you Ross yeah. Nickel Bagliotti. Yeah, 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 that was that was funny. <laughs> well, listen, well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out. Ross Bagliotti, congratulations. Be right back with Monica Webb right after this. And hey, that
2: was saying. To- I'm just thrust into this different world now. Okay, this is not snowboarding anymore. This isn't the World Cup tour now. I'm in LA, I'm in Hollywood, I'm meeting celebrities like within hours of this happening. So anyway, we fly back to Vancouver. Wait, hold we on. We're
1: the- we're in we're in LA in the in the late 90s. Forget the Porsche. Did anybody hook you up with some OG kush?
0: You know what? I didn't
2: did not did not get any weed out on that trip.
0: No, there's no reward at the end of this ordeal. Even people at the Beverly Hilton
2: recognize me, like just like getting into their limos They're like, You're that snowboarder. And I was like, holy shit. Man. Like, that was just two days ago. Like I-, I was in Japan. Now you're seeing me here and you're sure it's me. Um <laughs> anyways, uh yeah, no weed, unfortunately. Very foreign environment for me at this point. And um very outside my comfort zone. I get to the Vancouver airport where there's 10,000 people waiting. There's there's women in wedding dresses proposing, holding signs up. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, uh, like, ridiculous, like, mania. Like, I can't believe it. And I'm 26. I'm trying to keep it all together and be, like, professional and gold medalist and Canadian, Canada's hero and all this. But inside, I was just... So outside my zone, man, like I just wanted to get back into the forest with a blunt and not have any of this noise going on right now.
1: So you you haven't smoked for a long period of time leading up to this ordeal, (laughs) go through this entire ordeal. Yeah, that's a big tolerance break. Yeah, lots of of process too. Yeah, so I end up up in my,
2: my condo in Whistler. All of a sudden I'm by myself again in a state of shock, like literally in a state of shock.
1: Um,
2: I was being invited to do uh, uh, David Letterman that I turned down. Um, SNL was doing skits on me.
1: story of these Nagano games so far, Canada's Ross Rebliotti, the first ever Olympic snowboard champion, was stripped of his gold medal after testing positive for marijuana. But just a few days later, the Olympic committee returned the medal after ruling that marijuana is not a performance-enhancing drug. Joining me live here in his Olympic Village apartment is Ross Rebliotti.
3: Hey, man, what's up? (laughs) Hey, listen, man. The the lights, they have to be so bright.
1: (laughs) They're for the cameras. (laughs) For the...
3: Oh, okay. You're right, man.
1: (laughs) Uh, Ross, (laughs) when you were stripped of your gold
0: medal, how did that make you feel?
3: Oh, I was bummed out, man, you know? And then the
2: next thing you know, I'm flying out to Toronto. I'm doing Sports Illustrated. I'm meeting Wayne Gretzky's agents at IMG. I'm the biggest fucking thing since Michael Jordan, they're telling me. Like, this is off the off the scales and then so i'm flying to new york from toronto to go to soho to open up a new store and now the customs at soho is giving me problems right so i start seeing like a pattern they let me in and i I did the show um you know i was like having dinner with dan Aykroyd that night and and movie stars (laughs) and supermodels um at the at the soho store and smoking weed with you know people just like full novelty. Like I'm, I'm the next thing you know. Like I'm the guy people want to be part of that entourage, and they want to sit at my table. And you know, Dan Aykroyd's sitting beside me. And just,
0: that's like, so Looks. funny. Yeah, okay. I interviewed Dan Aykroyd one time, and he was such a dick. It's unbelievable.
2: <laughs> well, we went outside <laughs> to smoke a joint uh, together, Dan and oh, I. No, the, the owner oh. of uh, Roots, Michael Bunn, and um, I was actually. And I, can, I think I can still remember. I don't know if I even did smoke a dry. I, I can't remember if I was too scared to smoke weed because I was having all these issues with the border and everyone knowing who I was. It wasn't like I could just smoke weed. And, and this was still like the 90s, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Anyways. How much of this huge attention do you think had to do with winning the first uh, snowboarding gold medal, obviously a huge accomplishment and a huge, uh, story, but the way that it happened to you, did that make it this sensation really? It really did.
2: It was the weed sensation. Um, you know, the gold medal definitely, you know, would have been good by itself and, um, enough (laughs) to deal with, um, on its own. And, um, And the weed thing was really on the topic of conversation because California had recently just allowed medical cannabis just prior to that. So it was kind of still taboo to talk about it, but now because an Olympic gold medalist had it in his system during his event, and now it's okay to talk about it. And it really, in Canada, maybe other places, but in Canada really um, allowed for that conversation to occur around the kitchen table water cooler where these people wouldn't normally be talking about weed and everyone had an opinion it was you know it was very polarizing and you know our our family had death threats you know it wasn't like all fun like there was there was big pushback huge pushback you know I lost sponsors I couldn't get gigs like I was like Canada's like sweetheart but the corporate world wouldn't you know, shake a stick at me. Hmm. Um, I, I had a hard time. I found myself in poverty, you know, in a number of situations, uh, you know, very embarrassing um, at the time for me to have no ability to earn a living, but also too much of an ego to walk onto a job site and to look for a, a job because of who I perceived myself to be at the time. And, and my name was so big in Canada and other places that I, I couldn't imagine myself, where would I work? Like, what am I gonna do? Like, what what do I do now? And so like I had real estate and of course, during those times, the banks just give you mortgages, right? So now I didn't have a source of income to pay for my investments that I'd been making leading up to to Nagano and I've got like huge overhead that all of a sudden I can't you know make anymore and so just stress lots of stress but then you know also weed um because weed was was part of my life and um had become a bigger part of my life because not only was I isolated on the world cup tour but now I was even more isolated after Nagano and, and everything. I even had to retire you know, because of the, my travel issues. Um, I got on the, the no-fly list uh, after 9-11, and it just continued on for years, the, the prohibition and, and the, the things that were taken away from me as far as my freedoms were concerned.
0: So you were kind of rescued by the cannabis industry. How did you end up becoming a dispensary owner? Tell us about Ross's Gold.
2: So Ross's goal was fun when I had my, my daughter. So my second child with my new wife, who, by the way, we're still together 10 years later, we have two kids together. Super happy.
0: Amazing. Um,
2: yeah. So Rosie was just born. Okay. She's eight. So this was eight years ago and um, she was a baby and we had the dog and we were, We're in the the car crossing the border into Washington to go see my mom in California in Palm Springs with the baby. By this time, I had already done a lot of work um, on behalf of cannabis advocacy and speaking out against prohibition and defending people like Michael Phelps on NBC. I was the guy. I was the athlete that they invited on NBC when Michael Phelps had his bong hit, famous bong hit. Mm -hmm. And, um, why would an athlete choose cannabis? Like, holy shit. Right. And, and I laid out a, such a strong argument that the other guy just freaked out. He's like, well, why is it that there's so many people in cannabis rehab? And I happen to know that in the States you have an ultimatum, you either go to rehab or you go to jail for cannabis. And so after that, I just shut the conversation down. Like they literally shut off NBC. They didn't want to hear that. Right. And anyways, by this point, we're going across the border and they're like, no fucking way. Right. And I hadn't even tried to go across the border for like a long time since nine 11, right. Since 2001. So this is eight years ago. So this is 2015. This is over 10 years. I haven't seen my mom. I haven't gone to the States or nothing. And this must've all been cleared up by now. Like it can't still be a problem and we get turned away right away. And it was a huge ordeal just because like, my wife just had a baby. We had, I had to convince her to drive to California from British Columbia and we're in Whistler two hours away from the border. It's not like a, a small deal to get turned away after such planning with babies and dogs and vaccinations for the dog and everything. And I was so irate and mad again. That's when I started, when I decided that I was going to do the the cannabis company and when I was going to do Ross Gould and everything that I would have wanted to protect as far as my my freedoms during prohibition like were gone from me like i everyone knew i smoked weed my parents knew i smoked weed the whole world knows i'm not allowed into the states i can't travel i can't do my snowboard career anymore fuck it right now i'm gonna do me i'm not gonna be canada's you know olympic guy anymore okay fuck you (laughs) you know i'm doing me i'm doing weed. I'm doing Ross's Gold. It's a story that people related to in Nagano. And it's a story that people still relate to today. Everyone's gone through ups and downs in their life. I'm not Willie Nelson. I'm not like Snoop Dogg. I'm not any of those guys. Okay, I have a different story. And I have a following for a different reason. I'm not someone who just smokes weed. And it's like, oh, I smoke weed, I'm gonna, you know, make something of it. Like, you know, I proved that at the time during the era that you can do something at a high level on weed and that was the thing that's what stopped the stigma that was the end that was the beginning of the end of stereotypes and stigmas and the beginning of the end of prohibition here in canada and that led me to ross's Gold, having lost all of the the things that i would have wanted to protect as far as corporate concerns and me becoming like able to supportive family and everything like that was gone so what I ended up doing was getting involved in one of the dispensaries out here that was like a compassion club and this is pre-legalization so full gray black gray whatever you want to call it and I worked my way into their production facility and so the next thing you know I'm working 2,000 lights I'm coming down every week you know learning everything there is about dispensaries and about growing weed. The next thing you know, I get introduced to guys that really want to go for it, and um, so we ended up building a beautiful Ross's Gold dispensary that got profiled um, on Leafly a couple of times. Uh, we won best dispensary in British Columbia two times. Um, we had around thirty-five strains, every you know extract for each strain. So we also have thirty-five kinds of of shatter, you know, everything. We had everything, oh, yeah, all,
0: man.
2: all the black market labels, all the cool stuff, all the high dose stuff that you can't get anymore. People are walking in looking for jewelry. Like it was the Ross Gold store and it was so beautiful
0: that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't know it was a dispensary. Essentially, weed made your snowboarding career in some ways and it fucked you up in some ways. Those few, few nanograms in your urine, you know, led to the greatest ordeal in your life. And then weed ended up saving your life and your career in a lot of ways. And you know, one of the things that we read that the Olympic Committee said was that cannabis gives a person some undue level of confidence and relaxation that sort of allows them to perform at a higher level. And whether it's snowboarding or just being a dad or being a dispensary owner, do you feel like cannabis still does that for you? Absolutely, it does. Um, you know, I, I like to say
2: cannabis introduces you to yourself. And uh, it brings up, you know, people get anxiety from cannabis a lot of times because there's things in their lives that are unresolved and it comes to the forefront when they're baked as fuck, right? And the next thing you're like, oh my God, I'm too baked. And they blame it on weed. But really, it's because they need to have that conversation with somebody about something. Um, and so I, I find that over the years because I smoke so much weed, I don't have any skeletons in the closet. Like I've dealt with so much of my shit. I I don't even get baked anymore. Like I, I gotta s- smoke weed just to stay straight right now. You know. <laughs> you know, weed's really lent itself to me in that way. Um, also as a companion, because I spent, you know, weeks and months and years in isolation and and being a celebrity isn't exactly what it's, you know, made out to be, especially if you're not rich and famous. Like if you're just famous, it's not as much fun. Um, (laughs) It's really way more fun when you also are rolling in it. Um, But that's just a speculation. I haven't actually made any money yet. But um, (laughs) what I can tell you though, is that we have the strongest brand in the country, in Canada. Now um, after legalization that you can't, get anything we have nothing for sale we have no website we have nothing and we're the strongest brand a friend of mine owns an LP they went to Toronto for a big convention right before COVID and um, they were given a powerpoint with every single icon so every logo of every cannabis company in Canada and mine was one of the only ones people could say what it was and it's it's ironic because I, I have nothing for sale And we're the biggest brand. So we're we're actually in conversation right now with with several very interested groups to be involved at this point because things have straightened out here with licensing, farm gate sales. Now we can have a a micro grow craft facility with a store attached to it where you couldn't have that before. Um, You can have your micro facility with your craft cannabis going to specific stores outside of your own store. And you couldn't do that before. And so now we're really finding that there's these collaborations of high-end grows with these high-end stores that you couldn't do before and so now we're starting to really see um, brands emerge now because of what's being allowed and it was not was before it was all about market cap you know these companies were all going public I'm only dealing with private companies we're private I only deal with private micro grows um, family run passionate people who are passionate not only about Um, smoking weed, but about the people who smoke their weed and the culture of cannabis.
0: That's fantastic. Well, Ross, we salute you. We salute your cannabis story. And we truly thank you for your contributions to the reformed cannabis perspective of Canada, the sports community and the entire world. Thank you so much for being on Great Moments in Weed History with
2: us. 100% boys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: That's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You could put five on it at moments in weedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanestock, aka Bean.